So before we open the Word of God, I just wanted to talk with you for a minute and then pray with you about a couple things. Um, you know, we've really emerged on the other side of COVID uh, as a society and in our church as well. And so in the coming days, our leadership is going to be asking Jesus a really important question, recognizing him as the functional leader, leader of our church. What's next for us as a church? What would you have for us as a church? And we've been sending out, and myself and Pastor Aaron have been producing a series of videos that we've sent to our leadership, helping them prepare for this. And one of the key meetings in this, around this, will take place tomorrow night from 6 till probably about 10, and then there'll be some other meetings after that. And, and that'll just kind of get us about, uh, from a historical perspective and our current reality, and after Monday night, then we'll be asking that question in light of those things. What would you have for us next as a church? And so would you be praying for our leadership as we're going to be discussing this in the days and months to come and then acting on those things as Jesus points us in? In my time here as lead pastor, I've just seen us step out in faith many times. And we're trusting Jesus as the functional leader to show us what would be next for us as a church. So why don't we pray about that and some other things, and then we'll look into God's word together for a moment. So Father, we just affirm and we say, in Jesus' name, this is your church. And we acknowledge you as the one who's in charge, the one who leads, the one who directs. And we want to hear your voice. We invite the Spirit to fill us as we just sang moments ago. We invite you to inform our thoughts and our, and our actions and our words. And may we hear from you in the clearest of terms as we look to you for your leadership in the days to come. And I can think of so many times in the past when you have shown us things where you have invited us down paths that uh, were way outside our comfort zone in good ways. And Lord, we're trusting you for those kinds of things in the days to come. We pray for our world, Father. Um, our world is, well, it's in tough shape right now in so many ways. And I think in particular of the wars in Ukraine and in the Gaza. And we pray, Father, for the peace of Jerusalem. It tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Psalm 122. We pray, Father, for uh, a cessation of the hostilities in the Ukraine and in the Gaza as quickly as possible. We pray that you would protect the innocent in these places. We pray that the guilty will be punished, in particular the Hamas terrorists. And we commit these things to you. And we would pray, Father, because, and I think of Israel, which is ironically a very unholy yet holy land. Very unholy and yet holy land. And yet many, many, and most would not bow the knee to Jesus Messiah. And so we pray in the midst of incredibly difficult things in the Ukraine and then in Israel, Lord, that they would come to the end of themselves and surrender their life to the living Christ. And so we invite you to do that. We invite you to do miraculous things. 
And Father, as we look into your word now, we pray that you would speak to us. Let us hear your voice. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We're in this series of eight messages entitled Life Without Water Wings. And it's all about the story of Jesus walking on water, Peter joining him on the water, walking on water. And we're inviting us as a church to get out of the boat, to take off our water wings and to join Jesus on the water. We've been talking this fall about what it means to belong, what it means to engage. And so we're doing these eight messages that revolve around all of these kinds of things. And as we do that, I'd like to read the passage to you again, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. And as I do it, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Remember, I've told you that this would suggest to us that he's about out in the middle, the boat's out out in the middle, which is about four miles in, it's the widest part, the Sea of Galilee is just over eight miles wide. And when the winds come from Jordan, strong winds, they can get waves a maximum of 10 feet high on the Sea of Galilee. And so quite a storm had kicked up that night. And during the fourth watches between three and six in the morning, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Well, the disciples saw him walking on the lake. They were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, so Peter's still a little uncertain. Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed out into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The day before Debbie and I got married, I got laid off from my job. Woo, wonderful news. So we went ahead and we got married the next day, and we went on a short honeymoon. And when we got back, I got a job, a temporary job, because I was going to head into the pastorate, a temporary job in a lumberyard for three months before I started in Cornac, Saskatchewan, in our first church. And at this lumber yard, my boss one day takes me aside and says, I want you to do something. And to be honest with you, I desperately did not want to do it. I was afraid to do it. And it was incredibly unsafe what he asked me to do. I don't think he could ever get away with it nowadays. But I was married now and I wanted to be responsible. And so I did. And what the job was, was that the front of the warehouse which I can't remember how high it was. It was 25 to 35 feet in that area at the peak. They wanted the front half of the waterhouse, the showroom area, painted. It was all covered in beautiful cedar, and they wanted it coated twice with clear rain guard. 
but they didn't have the right equipment at all. So it meant that I was going to have to climb to the top of an extension ladder that was anywhere, I can't remember exactly, but it was anywhere from 20 to 26 feet high. And this ceiling up here is 27 feet high. And I had to stand on the very top, I mean the very top rung of this ladder and stretch with a paintbrush and a can of paint in the other hand to paint this. And I was afraid of heights. And uh, very unsafe and kind of foolish on my part. I probably should have said, forget it, but I didn't. And so I prayed and I said, Lord, protect me. And then I did two things. I thought to myself, whatever you do, Scott, because you're afraid of heights, don't look down. And stayed focused, absolutely zeroed in on what you're doing. And up and down that ladder I went many times, and I am not a good painter. Debbie does all the painting in the house because I slop it everywhere. And I was shaking because I was afraid, so I didn't do a particularly good job. It, took, it seemed like forever to do this job. And I did a number of things wrong. But what I did do right was this. I didn't look down. I remember one time about halfway up the ladder, I looked to the side. But other than that, I never looked down. And I remained totally focused on the area to be painted. And I survived the last trip down the ladder. And so Peter is walking on the water. And things are going along pretty well. He's remaining absolutely focused on Jesus. He's not looking down. And he's focused in on the power and the presence and the person of Christ. But then it says in verse 30, he saw the wind, he saw the effects of the wind and the height of the waves. He got scared, secondly, he began to sink and he cried out for help. And it's reminiscent, if you're old enough to remember the Bugs Bunny, uh, Wild E. Coyote commercial, uh, cartoons from when we were kids, where the coyote was chasing the roadrunner and the coyote would run off the end of a cliff and he would be standing there in midair and all of a sudden he would realize that he'd run off the end of the cliff and he would look down, he would be standing there hovering in midair, he would panic up and he would hold up a little sign that said help and then he would fall to the canyon below. And the cartoon made it look like it wasn't the fact that he'd run off the end of the cliff that and that's why he fell. The reason he fell is because he noticed that he'd run off the end of the cliff. And when Jesus rescued Peter, he asks him, why did you doubt? And I don't think it was about beating up on Peter on Jesus' part. I think it was like any good teacher, Jesus wants Peter to learn. And he wants Peter to learn that as long as he's focused and trusting exclusively in Christ, he could walk on water. But when he focused on the waves and the storm, glug, glug, I need a towel. Everything rested on whether he focused on the storm or on the Savior. And this is what I want to talk to you about today in very practical terms as we do life? Am I focusing on the Savior or on the storm? And hope and what we focus on fuels the human heart. I was reading some time ago about a guy named Pablo Casals, and he practiced the cello 
for five hours a day. And he was recognized at that time, some years ago, as the greatest and most renowned cellist in the world. And he continued to do this throughout his life, even when he got very elderly. And it totally exhausted him to practice that many hours a day. And they said to him, why do you continue to do this? And here's what he said. I think I'm getting better. You see, when we focus on the right thing, there's hope. Staying focused on the power, on the presence, and the person of Christ. Think about the times in the Bible where two groups of people are facing the same challenge. So just let me remind you of a couple of them. Twelve spies go into the promised land. Ten of them say, it's way too much. There's all these giants in the promised land. There's no way we can take them. They have all these hugely fortified cities. But two of the twelve say, no, no, with God's help, it's ours. All the army of Israel is facing the Philistine army, which is around where the Gaza is right now. And they are scared to fight Goliath. They're petrified. He's a giant. He's got this huge spear and sword and shield. Teenage David comes along, takes one look, and says, with God leading me, I will triumph. And he does. One group looks down. The other is focused in the right place on the person, presence, and power of the living Christ. The question is not, as I'm talking about belonging and engaging, is not what I am capable of. The big question is, what might God want to do through me in terms of belonging and taking off the water wings? What does it mean to cultivate a mind that focuses on Christ during the storm? Imagine if you had this high-performance vehicle and you wanted to take a run at the Indy 500 with it. You wouldn't go and put in low-octane discount service station gas. You put the very best gas in because the fuel that goes in ultimately determines the performance. But we're often extremely casual in what we put into our minds to fuel our performance. This is why well-known verse of scripture, very well-known, but listen to it. Just actually like really, like sometimes we're so familiar with it, perhaps we kind of gloss over it. So just listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And while that's hard to do in our culture, it's hard to do in our current reality. Because things that are entirely contrary to those kinds of thinking bombard us constantly. And Paul is saying, Feed your mind healthy things. And this will allow us to stay focused on the power, the presence, and the person of the living Christ.
rather than on the storm. Two laws. The law of cognition, which simply means we are what we think. We are what we think. What we think begins to transfer into our life and embed itself in our life, and it results in actions. And it says, that's why it says again, another well-known verse, Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God and his will is. People are often saying, well, what, what does God want me to do? This is how we are able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The second law is the law of exposure. And as we allow things to repeatedly bounce around in our mind and are repeatedly come onto our radar and occupy our mind, as we allow these things to happen, eventually it shapes our mindset It shapes who we become and how our life goes forward. And it's kind of like the law of gravity in this sense. You know, nobody takes one of your, you know, takes one of your mom's really nice glasses and deliberately drops it on the cement and it smashes into a thousand pieces and then says, well, what were the odds of that happening? Nobody does that, right? And yet people act surprised when their minds have been repeatedly exposed to things that are contrary to what that Philippians passage says. And it begins to affect how they think and then ultimately who they are. And they expose themselves deliberately to thousands of images, say of violence on TV or the internet or movies. And then they act surprised when someone uses violence to get their way. And I know there's other things involved in all this, but it's part of the reason. Or they're flooding themselves with sexual images, which are everywhere, like in unprecedented ways. And then they get shocked when they get hooked on pornography or promiscuity, and their marriage ends up in adultery and divorce. Or someone else says, even though I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a believer of Christ, as a single person, I'm going to go ahead and date people who are outside the family, who are pre-Christians, who do not know Jesus, and then they're surprised or they act surprised when God has a lessened role in their life. And there's many characters in Scripture that are a testimony to this. And that kind of thinking makes about as much sense as saying, I wonder why that glass broke when I dropped it on the cement. This is why God is so very clear about not doing these things. So what about if we flip those two laws, the laws of cognition and the laws of exposure, and allow them to work in helpful ways? Let me just talk to you about some very practical things that we can do. In Isaiah, I love this verse, Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, God will keep in perfect peace all who trust in him, whose thoughts are fixed on him. So if we want to be people of hope, people who are focused on the presence and the power and the person of Christ, 
People who are at peace, even though the waves are kicking up all around us in life. We must think the kinds of thoughts that produce those characteristics. And practically speaking, that comes from repeatedly exposing our minds to scripture, to resources, to books, to podcasts, to people, to conversations that tend to promote confidence in God. And so just for example, you're facing a problem, an employee problem at work. Instead of saying, well, what am I going to do about this? And fretting about it and spiraling down typically and what can I do and how can I handle it? Talk to Jesus about it. We often forget. This is so simple and yet we forget this. And this is exactly what Peter did when he needed help. He cried out for help. Frank Lombach, writing about this, said, many of us who have tried this have found that we think so much better that we never want to try to think without Jesus again. And so you're having this problem with this employee and you're trying to solve it all by yourself. Why not pray and say, you know, God, I really want you to be the functional leader of my life, Jesus. And this is a practical example. It seems to me like this would be the option going forward. But what do you think, God? I give you that leadership. Am I missing something? Is there something else I should do, something else I should try? This is the real stuff of life. Lombach also writes, why not keep a picture of Christ or a verse of Scripture that you'll see when you are going to sleep, last thing you see before you go to sleep, or first thing when you get up in the morning. And Deb and I have done this. It's just a small thing, but it's a cool thing. On the wall across from our bed, we had this plaque or whatever. She had it made up. And it says on it, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. It's the last thing we see and the first thing we see in the morning. And then down on the the, the main level, the living room level, she got another one made up. She's really good at this. Today is an adventure with Jesus. It's just a good, it just begins to impregnate your mind with these really good things. I have these kinds of things hanging off my spare monitor on my desk. And when we do these kinds of things and feed our mind in these ways, it begins to um, just in... In a, it, it begins to create a flourishing reality in our life of God and his way in our life. When we, secondly, when we, when we meditate on scripture, and I know I've talked to you about this before, but it's so important. It's so important. This is why it says in Psalms 1 that he, he says, the psalmist says, I, I meditate on the law, on the word of God day and night. And it means to take scripture and to just turn it over in your mind over and over again, to let it simmer there. God, how does this apply in practical terms in my life? Because it's kind of incredibly empty to just have knowledge of God's inner word. It's almost detrimental if it's not applied in your life. I do very little cooking in the house, very little. She's, she's a way better cook than me, as you can tell by looking at me. But one of the things I do cook is I cook chili. And something I've discovered is 
when I make chili and I cook it and eat it right away, it's pretty good. I've only gotten violently ill a couple of times. But to make it even better, what I've discovered is you put the ingredients in, you cook it low and slow, you let it come up to a boil and cook thoroughly in that sense, but then you let it cool right down and you set it aside for later. Maybe you even freeze it or in a day or two, you take it out and you heat it up again really slowly. And what happens in my experience is that the ingredients and the spices have marinated together and they begin to blossom and flourish even more. And the flavor that you encounter that after that second cook, that slow second cook, is more pronounced and more pleasing because they've mixed thoroughly over time. This is what it means to meditate on Scripture. Not just to get more knowledge, but to say, how can this impact the way I actually do life? And as you often hear me say, the book addresses every part of life, either directly or indirectly, every part of life. Memorizing Scripture. Just another, when my, I remember when my kids were little, and uh, once in a while I would drive them to school on my, the way to work here at the church, and on the way we would memorize Scripture together. Or we would pray and we would pray together. We, I remember memorizing the books of the Bible with them, the 66 books of the Bible. And then we would talk about the different sections, about the Pentateuch, the first five books, about the history of Israel, about the poetic books, about the prophets, the major and the minor ones, about the gospels, the historical biographies of the life of Jesus, about the book of Acts that talks about how the church in the New Testament launched. And then all of the books written by Paul after that that says he here, you know, I believe God says there is no plan B. The local church is plan A, even with all its faults. And so I want these churches to be functioning the way they're supposed to. And so Paul writes all of these churches, to, to these local churches to say, here's how to be healthy. And so we would talk about these kinds of things as we would drive and just double up the time in that sense. Because we understood fundamentally that there's something good that happens in my mind and in my life as I rehearse the truths of Scripture. So let me give you an example. On the screen you see Romans 15 verse 13, another really cool verse, which says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd like us to read that verse together. Let's, let's read it together out loud, out loud. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And he's wrapping, there's one more chapter of scripture, but he's heading towards the last words he's writing to the church in Rome. And Rome, the book of Romans is this incredible theological treatise, but he's teaching some fundamental things. And so if you were to take this verse and meditate on this verse at length, you're going to see some things emerging from it. You're going to begin to realize, you know what? God really is the source of hope. 
certain hope. Biblical hope is always certain. There's no maybe attached. And God is the source of hope. That in fact, he is the one that will fill me with all hope and all joy and all peace. That in fact, he wants me to overflow with hope. He wants it to sort of be oozing out of my pores. And lastly, and absolutely crucially, all of this stuff is not dependent on me. I can't do this. Try to do this on your own, you're going to fail miserably. This is all dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me. And so I give my life to Christ. And then as I live each day, one time I give my life to Christ. It has impact for eternity. And then every day I'm saying, Lord, here's a new day and I offer my life to you, would you fill me with your spirit? Because I can't do this on my own. I know you never intended for me to do this on my own, and so would you fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit so I can be a person of hope, I can be a person of overflowing joy and overflowing peace. Would you do that? And you know what? He will, even when it's tough, even when it's really tough. So what does a mind that is focused on hope, on the presence, the power, and the person of Christ look like. True story about this lady um, who had cancer. And uh, she went to her doctor, and he said, got some tough news for you. Uh, You got about three months, give or take, to live. And that turned out to be basically true. And so he said, you should get ready, because it's coming. And so one of the things she did is she went to her pastor and she said, you know, I like to have a funeral. And, and uh, so they talked about some of the practicalities of that, what kind of songs they might sing and passages of scripture and things like that. And she said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be buried with my favorite Bible. He said, oh, that sounds really cool. Then she said one more thing. She said, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Want it to be sticking up so everybody can see. And he said, okay, um, that's a little unusual. Can I ask why? And she said, well, you know, in all my years going to church functions, whenever food was involved, my favorite personal part, she says, whenever somebody was, say, clearing away the dishes of the main course, they would lean over and they would say, you can keep your fork because that meant something good was on the way. And so I want people to look at me. It's going to be an open casket. I want me to look at me and see this fork sticking up in my right hand. And I want everybody to say, what's with the fork? Like, what's going on here? Who put the fork in your hand? And then, Pastor, I want you to explain that something better is coming. Keep your fork. See, anybody, the Bible says very clearly, anybody who dies in Christ, if you have received Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, if you have asked him to forgive your sins and you're crushed by your sins and you realize you're hopelessly outside the family of God and only Jesus can forgive you, and then you've surrendered in the best way you know how your life to him and said, my life is yours. That's what it means to receive him as Lord and, or leader of your life and you've begun or launched, and he launches a relationship with you, 
the day you die will not be a day of defeat. It might be a day of sorrow. There'll probably be some tears. But it will also be a day of celebration because the scripture says the real party is just kicking off when you die. That the God of water walking and the God of the empty tomb says to us who are in the storm, keep your focus on the presence, the power, and the person of Christ. And whatever you do, keep your fork. His resurrection is coming.